Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And welcome once again to Dave and Marlo of Blazers Edge Podcast. Today, um, Marlo is off and it is just Dave, but that's okay. You and I will talk for a little while about your Portland Trail Blazers because they have just undergone the biggest week of their year. The biggest thing that's happened Let's see. I mean, Jeremy Grant was the big thing last year, and that was not as significant as this. I mean, it had the potential to be as big as anything since 2015 when LaMarcus Aldridge was making his free agent decision. It didn't quite reach those levels, but it's pretty huge. Certainly goes up there above the trade of C.J. McCollum, uh, back maybe to the draft of C.J. McCollum uh, before you can find something that in the moment was as significant. Now, in the long run, Shade and Sharp may be as or more significant than this moment, but as yet, that has not happened. So we will comfortably say that it's the biggest day or was the biggest day the Blazers had experienced in a decade. Of course, that was Tuesday night when they won, quote-unquote, or earned <laughs> super, quote-unquote, the third place, the third pick in the 2023 NBA lottery. And where were you during that lottery drawing? That event united the Blazer fan base in a way that nothing else has since 2019 when they were in the Western Conference Finals. Everybody seemingly was watching, talking about it, waiting with bated breath. Do you remember the feeling when the order went pretty much as predicted and then they skipped Portland at number five? For all its faults, and it has a few, that moment is one of the best things about the lottery system. That reverse reveal, and when you realize that the envelope that they just pulled is not your team, which means that, oh my goodness, you have a higher pick and maybe number one. That moment 
was just fantastic. And even though the Blazers didn't get number one overall, I think it still made it an incredibly fun night. Of course, Portland ended up, as we said, with number three, which you already know, unless you've been living under a rock or stumbled on this podcast accidentally. The San Antonio Spurs got number one. Uh, You know, okay, I've said this a couple times, once on radio, once on Twitter. I have mixed feelings about it. I love and respect San Antonio. Uh, They are among my favorite teams of the last couple decades, not just because they've been successful, but because they did it right. And I will say this, let's give them their kudos first. They got a lot of good players, obviously, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili. Uh, they, They had the right system. It was consistent. And I would say, above all, they succeeded because their superstar, Tim Duncan, at least to outward appearances, was completely dedicated to them and to their system that he never wavered, and his all-lifetime excellence. Uh, I mean, he, he's one of the greatest. He, he's near, if not on, Mount Rushmore. Uh, certainly he is for power forwards. And he might be, among some arguments, for overall NBA players. Okay, He never caused them any doubt. He absolutely was dedicated to Greg Popovich, to his teammates, And that was incredibly important to their success. You've got people like, and I I don't want to throw stones. I'm not saying they're bad players, but, you know, Carmelo Anthony, for instance, was an all-generational player who bounced around a little bit and who had a little bit of, you know, himself in himself. Great. He's entitled to. But San Antonio would not have succeeded with that level of talent uh, and that attitude. Uh, They succeeded because Duncan was all in all the time and everybody else fell in line. That is their kudos, okay? That's full props to them. But it irks me. I mean, and and it's sour grapes, I admit it. It irks me that they get to do this twice. That they got a a once-in-a-lifetime big in the lottery from... At that point, they're one year off. They've been a little bit slumping since. But they would not have won anything. They could have done all the same stuff and not had Tim Duncan. And they would have been a cute little team that maybe made some runs into the playoffs a little bit. But they would not have been a dynasty and they wouldn't have won a championship. And so all the lessons, all the things, and this is what I'm getting at. Like, Greg Popovich likes to get up there and tell truth and more power to him. He, like, laughs and scoffs. All right. Well... The first truth that should be told about San Antonio at this point, since it's happened twice, when people get up there and say, well, how'd you do this? How are you so good? The very first sentence should always be, we got lucky twice. Got lucky. We got Tim Duncan in the lottery, and now we got Victor Wembanyama in the lottery. And without those two things happening, A, Pops wouldn't be coaching and giving that interview for that long. B, there wouldn't be titles in San Antonio. C, there wouldn't be all this talk about the culture and all the things they did right, because even though they would have done them, they would have looked a lot like every other NBA franchise who had tried same and not succeeded because the Lakers always got the big player or whatever. So that's my little bit of sour grapes. I admit it. It may not be the best part of me, but when Wemby went there, I thought, oh, you know, 
you you get a you get a pass once, and as some people have pointed out, it's actually twice because they got David Robinson too. So this will be your third time now with the generational center. And at this point, you deserve a little poking. You deserve a little reminder, uh, yelling out to Caesar, beware the Ides of March. Uh, you won because of the lottery. You started this on third base. So let's talk about that. And uh, let's, uh, you know, let's ease up a little bit on how excellent you are while admitting you're really fast in that run around the bases. When you start three quarters of the way there, it's easier to get home than it is for the rest of us. And admittedly, yes, do I want that for the Blazers? Sure, I would have taken that. And here's the difference, and let's drift back into Portland talk now. The difference between the first overall pick and every other pick in this draft was obviously enormous. It was as huge as anything since LeBron James. Now, I don't believe that Wemby is minted and it's going to be an all-time player. I think one national commentator, who I shall not name because I don't follow his stuff, that's something ridiculous about if, if he turns out to be just an Elijah Wan or just a whatever, Kevin Durant, that he's a disappointment. And it's like, that's absolute garbage. So many things have to go right, as Blazer fans know, because guess what? Once upon a time in 2007, Portland had that number one pick. And you know what? They used it pretty correctly when their players were healthy. Greg Oden, whom they selected, Marcus Aldridge, and Brandon Roy. They won like 84% of their games or some ungodly amount when those three played together. But of course, Odin was chronically injured and had other difficulties, and therefore they never got off the ground, which is part of the sad subtext of this. It's like, okay, that could have been a little bit of redemption. Didn't happen. But, you know, there's no guarantee that Wemby will be uh, a Kevin Durant or uh, Hakeem Olajuwon, even if he's suited for it skill-wise, and even if he's built for this era of the game. I mean, there's health and longevity and luck and all this stuff. So, I mean, I, I think it's ridiculous to make those comparisons at this point, but it's not ridiculous to say there's no one else at his level and hasn't been anybody else in a draft for a long time with this kind of expectation. And again, I think I would go back to LeBron, honestly. So we'll have to see what they make of it, but it would have been way better to have that number one overall pick. We would be having a different discussion right now. We would now, and the, the, the way I wrote it uh, when I wrote this speculative uh, post, because sometimes we pre-write things in case things happen, because you know what? When the event happens, sometimes... You want to get it up within five minutes. You don't have a lot of time. You know what's going to happen if it if it occurs. And so uh, what you end up doing is writing the story beforehand, which I did. It was a lot of fun. I wrote up a Victor Wembam Yama post, right? And I said what this meant. And there was a certain amount, and maybe this is contributing to my bitterness, there was a certain amount of anticipation that I had after I completed that post. Uh, I felt that feeling. I did the assessment. I did the analysis. And wow. And, and basically the way I put it was winning the lottery then absolutely lifted Portland out of any conundrum that they were stuck in and obliterated almost all their questions. And they're stuck pretty good and they have a lot of questions. So that's a near miracle in itself. 
and they didn't do it by filling every gap or by making guarantees. Rather, it made every possible road that they would take all right. If you ended up keeping Damian Lillard and doing nothing else and just executing that first pick, you were okay. If you ended up trading a player or two to bolster the wing, they were going to be okay. If they ended up having to trade Damian Lillard because he didn't want to wait for Wemby to grow up, or because they thought they could get more assets that way for Wembenyama's future, that was okay. Every road would have been nearly, if not equally good, at least you could see from point A to point B, and point B was really, really good. You can tell the difference because now they have the third pick, which is pretty close, only one pick in between them and one, and it's definitely not that way. And you can tell because of the angst that is surrounding this third pick and the debate that has come up since. So let's talk about that for a minute. First, we've established the third pick is not the one pick. But I think it's all right, actually, because you know what? The third pick alleviates a lot of tension from Portland's point of view. I mean, the second pick would technically be better, but I think there might be some waffling. Do you want that player? Do you want the, the pick of everybody else? Would it really be smarter to continue onward, or do you want to leverage this into a Well. If you want to leverage it into a trade, who do you trade with? You have a lot of possibilities, et cetera, et cetera. So the questions become wider. They're good questions, admittedly. But there's also some doubt. I think the third pick puts some psychological distance between Portland and those extra questions. Uh, they're not going to be able to determine which of the top three falls to them. It will be determined by San Antonio and Charlotte, okay? So they have one player that they're looking at and compare it. If they love that player and think that that particular player is the future of their franchise, then they draft. Them. And I think they'd be okay doing that, honestly, in a sense. I don't think they'll be, I don't think that's a failure of their plans if they end up having to execute that pick and keep the player. They're going to be good, fine. But also, it makes it easier to trade. There, there are no choices there, unless you want one of the Thompson brothers or something like that. There's, there's just no choices there. You take Miller, you take Henderson, or you trade it. And if you trade it, you know who you're going to talk to because there's a narrow band of people who want that asset and have the ability to pay for it. So it just, to the extent there is an easy button for a situation like this, and, and there's not entirely, but to the extent that it, it clarifies and simplifies down, getting number three makes it simple. So I think there's some psychological easing having gotten that exact spot. I think two, there's a lot more questions. I think four is starting to get farther down, and now it doesn't have as much value. As far as the Blazers go, would you rather have one? Yeah, rather have two, probably, but three is just... Um, what they do with it. Now that's the debate. And inevitably, this is brought up for people, this swirling swamp of what do you do with Damian Lillard? And again, I don't think that those two questions are necessarily inextricably entwined. I think it's possible that you can draft and keep a player at number three and still keep Lillard all right for one more year because you know what? That player is probably going to be pretty good. 
I know you're still bringing along Shaden Sharp, but Shaden Sharp didn't disrupt things last year. Instead, he was an added bonus for the future. As Marlowe and I have talked about, he might be the guy who ascends and finally passes Lillard down the road uh, as Lillard's age makes him decline and as Sharp's star rises. I don't think it's necessarily bad having two players like that, especially since the player you get in this year's draft will probably have a shorter learning curve and be able to contribute quicker. The problem comes, of course, if you're left with Scoot Henderson and then he's sitting there playing point guard and now you've got Lillard and you've got Simon and you've got Sharp and that's four. And even if you scoot Sharp to shooting guard, or I'm sorry, to small forward, there's there's not a lot of room. Uh, if you get Miller there, I think that you can you know, more than live with that. So, you know, hey, it's not an impossible situation. It just starts the clock. I would not be entirely shocked if the Blazers executed that pick, kept the player, and Dame was still here in the fall. I would be shocked if he was still here if it didn't work again, or if the learning curve was too slow, I think this would be his last year for sure. Now, that doesn't mean I think he will stay. I wouldn't be shocked to see him demand a trade either. So I know that the Blazers are trying to avoid that situation, obviously by moving the third pick, and therein lies the struggle. But here's the thing. They cannot center the, their decision solely around Lillard, okay? There is no guarantee that the trade they make will work sufficiently to please him. I mean, uh, and not that he's that demanding, but you know what I mean. You know what the criteria are, that they become a significant playoffs team. Well, you know what? They just got Jeremy Grant, who is an established veteran, that Lillard want, who wanted, who scored 20 points a game and actually fit in pretty well. They did that, and they won 33 games, okay? Now, obviously, they tanked at the end of the season, and we know all that, but that doesn't change that they were in the position where they had to tank, okay? Injuries, a lot of other things can happen, the fit, the learning curve, the whatever. The only thing we're sure of is that Lillard's clock is going to continue to tick. That is the only given. They could trade this pick for name your veteran. Don't care who it is. I mean, it could be Joel Embiid, whom I think they can't get, but the guy gets injured chronically. He could get injured, and there you go. Now, do I think Lillard would hang on after that? Probably, but it doesn't mean that the move is going to work. Okay? They could get Mikhail Bridges, and he's not the right fit. They could get Jimmy Butler, and all of a sudden he bags his way through the regular season and can't turn it on next year in the playoffs, and it, it falls flat. There are a hundred things that can happen with any player. Now, some moves are better than others. They should probably make a good move if they can find it, but they cannot base that good move solely upon keeping Lillard because it might not work. They have to do the best move possible for their situation, period. Right now, that includes factoring Lillard in as a factor, if not the primary factor, but it cannot be the only factor. They cannot make 
their second or third best move in order to keep Dame. And then have Dame walk because you're then taking the best asset that you've had in eight years and not doing the best thing possible with it. That is not smart. It's not imaginable for a 33-win team who has missed the playoffs two years. Nor for a team with all this young talent that is going to take some measure of growth no matter what happens. You cannot mortgage that future significantly to take a run at the present. If you're going to take a run at the present, you have to be sure that that is the best move overall that you can make, or at least so close that it doesn't make a difference. Okay? Now, whether trading that third pick is that move will depend on who they can get for it. There are players, a couple of which we just named, where you could say, you know what, we are reasonably sure that this is, I mean, some players, we talked about this on site, some players just prove themselves, and Bede is one of them. I think Jalen Brown would be another. Like, no matter what the situation, no matter who this is, if you have the chance to get them, you get them, period. The trade explains itself. All right, no argument. It just explained itself. Now, later, future, whatever you were thinking of, it was automatically the right move. It's like ordering the caramel cheesecake for dessert. You can never go wrong with it. The move explains itself. Nobody's going to argue and go, why the heck did you get that caramel cheesecake when the rhubarb crumble was available? Well, I, I like rhubarb, sorry, I like rhubarb crumble, but I, you know, can't argue with the cheesecake, do it. There's another move, which we called a bridge move, which split the middle. It's like, okay, this might not be your self-explanatory MVP level veteran, but you know what? This is a really, really good player with a couple more years and a proven track record on them that your rookie that you draft at number three would not have. And if they help Damian Lillard in the current situation, you are ahead and it's the right move. But if they don't and Lillard leaves, you've still got this guy and this is the right move. May not be the cheesecake, but you know it's the molten lava cake, which is also all right, even though you got it at Applebee's or Chili's. It's still an okay dessert. I mean, it's really good. You're going to be glad you have it, and it'll work either way you go. All right, do that. I mean, and we're talking probably someone that's under 28, and we're talking someone with a lot of skill and a lot of talent. Sure, make that move. The one that was sketchy was the super veteran. I mean, and we've talked about this with Marlo. Uh, we've, you know, you've got your Draymond Green, which, whom Marlo likes, and Jimmy Butler, whom Marlo likes even more. I, I like them. I understand them. But, you know, you're looking at 34. You're looking at maybe problematic approaches to the game. That You have to be real careful of that because that's not either as explains itself move or a good for the future if Dame leaves move, and now you've left yourself vulnerable to this going sideways. And I think Portland has to make this not go sideways as much as they have to make it not, or make it go forward, rather. So they have to make sure that this move definitely is the correct. Now, somehow, I want to talk about this. Somehow, 
this has morphed into yet another discussion of trading Lillard. And I think it happened because, you know, one of our local columnists suggested that was the right move. I was, I went on the radio myself and talked about this. And I, I will tell you, I, I'm not pro trading Dave, but I will say this, and I will say this clearly that the book says that if you were looking at this team blindly, the sane and normal way forward would be to try to move your superstar for future assets in this situation. That's the standard move. It's kind of like a doctor doing a diagnosis. There's a, you know, I don't know, a 60, 70% chance that this is the correct diagnosis for your symptoms. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always right, and doctors have to ask further questions. But if they ask those further questions, and if they diagnose something outside of the norm in the belt, there has to be a reason for that, and they have to show it. Okay? Now, it's not as clear for basketball. It's not as clear for the Blazers. Portland will not be able to show anything prior to whatever develops developing. But it is incumbent upon them retroactively to show that they made smart, sane, good move at this juncture if they don't trade Dame. Okay? They may have that symptom or two outside of the bell curve that makes them say, this is not the normal diagnosis. We really do need to keep him. They need to show that. They need to share that. If they can't show why they didn't do it, and if it didn't turn out right, then people, including me, are going to say, you know what? Odds are that they should have done this when they had the chance because that was, by the playbook, the correct move. They don't have to take it, but if they don't, they need to show why. It's not unfair to say that. There is, there is a big chance right now that we will look back in five, in 10 years and say, you know what? Trading Dame really was the right move in 2022 even, or 2021, let alone 2023. Because they had the number three pick, they had the chance to grow forward, and they didn't do it. They should have traded Dame. That's a large possibility. It's not wrong to bring that up. And if you don't do it, you need to show why, and you need to show results. If they don't, then they have to take their lump. Doesn't look like they're going to, or they're going to try not to, and that's fine. But there's another wrinkle in this that I've noticed, is that the fan base, in response to this, is now going crazy. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's really kind of irking me, honestly. I mean, I hate it. I mean, Dave, you're the dad of the whatever. Okay. Well, I, I don't claim that spot. Uh, there are a lot of people more senior to me in this whole environment and whatever. You know, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, an identity that I relish. That said, I feel a little bit like one when I read stuff like, well, all real fans want to keep Dame. If you don't want to keep him, you're not a real fan. Or... Listen to all the hate. Let's drown it out, uh, whatever it was that somebody said. Okay. First of all, all I read was stuff from the other side that said, like I said, people 
who want to trade Dame are awful and not real fans. Well, you know what? First of all, it's not wrong to talk about any possibility. We're here to talk about the Portland Trailblazers. And that includes Damian Lillard, and we're here to talk about Damian Lillard too. And we're also here to be free to speculate or assert that different roads uh, forward are possible, and different roads might have advantages or disadvantages, or even to offer opinions that one road might be better than another. Now, granted, there are some people who do that in such a way that make it all about themselves. You guys got to trade Dame, otherwise you're stupid. Okay, that's dumb. I mean, we should dismiss that. That's not great. But you know what? Saying every real fan thinks that we should keep Dame. If you don't keep Dame, you're not a real fan. It's just as stupid. It's just on the other side. And you know what? Part of why this irks me is, I mean, I shouldn't. I, I shouldn't let it get to that point, I guess, inside me. I'll own it. But I, I don't think I've made a secret of it that I, you know, Blazer's Edge started right on the tail end of the Jail Blazers era, and it started, at least my participation, in response to exactly this kind of stuff, where the team was obviously off track, and nobody was allowed to say anything about it. The management was quick to shut down uh, any suggestions from media or anywhere else that they were at all in any kind of bad spot or doing anything that was suboptimal. And if you spoke against management, you were a traitor. And then you had the fan base in their wake who was smaller, but also quickly shouted down anybody who offered analysis, alternatives, uh, a different viewpoint, because it was like, oh, you know, oh, we believe in the trailblazers. If you believe in the trailblazers, you believe in them no matter what. And if you say anything against them, you're not really... Uh, one of us. You're not really a fan. And it was obvious. I mean, it was the Jailblazers era. They were winning like 18 games. The, the, the culture had fallen apart. They had lost something. But it wasn't just what they lost. It was what the fan base lost. The ability to talk to each other. The ability to be together despite adversity and to listen to each other and to converse without eating each other up and destroying each other and putting each other in camps of the faithful and the unfaithful or the insiders or the outsiders or the smart people or, and the people who just think with their hearts or whatever it was. And it was miserable. It was terrible. And I'd like to think that Blazer's Edge, at least in part, became a place where we could get beyond that and have a new kind of discussion where people could say things that not everybody said them skillfully or well, but you are always welcome to offer ideas, opinions, facts, arguments, whatever it is you thought you were, and that was okay because, you know what, we're not making this about ourselves. We're not coming together to talk about uh, me as an author or uh, an individual commenter as a Blazer fan, uh, except in good ways. We're coming to talk about the team and really to open up all the facets and possibilities about the team. And that's okay, even if someone brings up a facet or possibility or argument we don't personally agree with. So I had thought that we were past some of this. Maybe I was living in my bubble or maybe just I immersed myself in conversation that's relatively decent. But now look, 2023, we're in a much better spot 
and in fact, I think we got rid of the team executive that was most problematic. And these team executives are a lot better. But you know what? Even that accessibility has created, and, and I think it's not just Portland, I think it's the entire environment. You have a media environment where access is both prized, as it always has been, but also increasingly contingent upon repeating the story of the people who are empowered as unadulterated truth. And I think you see this, it's always been true a little bit among beat writers because their access is immediate and direct. But it's also been true uh, or becoming true among national newsbreakers. And I think we've seen some of that. The Trailblazers fans themselves have some critiques of one national media person who parroted Golden State's explanation of the Gary Pate 2 situation without a lot of critical thought, because you know what? That's kind of what media does. They attach themselves to a player or organization or various facets of organizations like owners or GMs as opposed to players or whatever, and each one has their pipeline to their own person or set of people, and they represent that as unvarnished truth. That's definitely in the atmosphere. now. That's a lot what it means to be media. And you know what? That's also coupled with the definition of media being a lot broader. Like there are a lot of not lifer media people or not, you know, de degreed media people. And admittedly, I am one of those. Uh, but I do, I do not play on the access side. I play on the analysis side more in the conversation side. Anyway, we'll put that aside. But I'm not downing someone who's doing media work without a journalism degree or 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 50 years of experience or whatever it was, right? That's fine. Uh, and I support that, actually. I think in some ways those voices have become better. But one of the things that the hard-bitten degree used to do was give you some separation and distance between you and your source, that you would view your source with suspicion. And your job would be to kind of run some filters or provide some alternate explanation. We really, 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 really don't have that anymore. Not in the same way. That when your source, the coach or the GM or whatever, says something and lets you into their plan or whatever, uh, it, it, it gets reported on because your credibility and your value is in the is being the person that is close enough to be able to share that with people and so you want that to be the whole story. You want that to be the truth because there are other truths Then either A, you're not as close to those truths as you are to the one you just got from your inside source, or B, those other truths kind of devalue in this construct your inside source because now you have part of the story, but you don't have the whole story and you really want to have the whole story. So there is a tendency now, even among media people, to do what we just talked about happening in the Jailblazers era, it's, except instead of it being enforced upon them by a taciturn, grumpy, and power-wielding management class, it is actually somewhat voluntary by access, or be, by being that special person, or by getting the inside view and not having quite as strong as filter, a filter or judgment as past media generation used. So now what are you getting? Well, if a GM says it, or a coach says it, or a player says it, it's the truth. All right? So you've got that aspect of the jailblazer coming through, this kind of unvarnished uh, repetition of what management says. 
or the insiders. And then you also now apparently have the other side where people who dare to offer up an alternative are categorized as outside, not belonging, stupid, summarily dismissed. Well, what are you getting then? What kind of conversation are you having? I mean, it becomes very quickly totalitarian, authoritarian, and even if you don't want to go that far, very limited. And that's exactly, I don't understand why we are jumping into this kind of foolishness. I don't understand why it's wrong to suggest that one of the options for the Portland Trailblazers might be trading Damien and that that option should be examined and that there may be ways of exploring that that are fruitful. But you know what? I'm increasingly watching media members and fans in the Portland circle, shout that down. And I don't mind that it's not the right answer. It may not be. But it's the shouting down. It's the casual dismissal. It's the, the vitriol. Uh, the, the Almost a, a willful la-la-la blind that I think is really disturbing in any facet of life, including this one. I think we all need to step back and say, you know what? The purpose of this is that we can discuss all of it. And the purpose of this is so we can enjoy it. And I don't know, at least for me, as soon as you can't hear something that is an alternative to what you think without absolutely castigating and ostracizing people from your club uh, or your group, that the enjoyment has leached out of it for me. And I find that profoundly disturbing. And here's the last thing I'll say, and I'll go gently, but you know what? Damien Lillard contributed to this himself on Twitter with a tweet, and I forget exactly what it said. I should pull it up, but basically said, I think it was in response to the author of the story. I'm not sure it was in response to the fan base, so I'll touch lightly on it, but basically said, you know what? If the fans want to want me to be gone, start a poll and vote me out. And it's like, first of all, adding a lot of, I think, unnecessary emotion to the thing. Uh, because, you know, I don't know a single fan, and I'm sure he doesn't either, who really is saying, yeah, get Dame out of here. And if there are, it's a vanishingly small percentage that everybody I know loves and respects Damian Lillard. And if anybody's saying, you got to trade this guy, I guess I have seen a couple comments, but those are like five comments in a thousand, okay? Um, second of all, this is the most popular trailblazer, and I would say the most beloved trailblazer who has ever existed. Bill Walton had nowhere near this level of support. Jerome Kersey did not have this level of talent. Clyde Drexler had the longevity, but you know, things at the end, people loved him, but... There was some, you know, there was some rattling around at the end. Damian Lillard will be, and even if he leaves, will remain, the most beloved, acclaimed player who has ever put on this uniform. Nobody gets more credit than he does. Nobody gets more positive attention than he does. The idea of, in essence, piling on when people are exploring alternatives, even if they don't put it skillfully, is a little bit egregious to me. I don't think it's a good look. I'm sorry. 
And you know what? Of course, it put kerosene on that fire. Yeah, you guys are insulting Dame and they're making it uncomfortable for Dame and whatever. Okay, let's let's all own our stuff. If if I if it disturbs me to hear the idea of Damian Lillard being traded because of my fandom and the way I feel about it, that's the way I should say it. Look, this talk of hearing Damian Lillard traded makes me sad. It really hurts me, and if that happened, I'd be crushed because this guy is the Trailblazers for me. I've never seen a player like him, and I will love him for life, and I'm going to own those feelings, and I'm going to say, this is how this suggestion makes me feel. There's nothing to argue with about that. That's fantastic. I love hearing stuff like that. I think everybody should. All right. It should not come out as, well, that is true for me, and you suggested something that kind of hurt me or made me feel the sads, therefore I'm going to attack you and tell you you're not a real fan. Um, if Damian Lillard wants to leave, I mean, this is the other side of the coin. If Damian Lillard leaves, let's put it this way, only one person in the universe will have made that decision. It is not the fans. It is not the media. It is not the team, even. They've given him an extension that goes it beyond forever and has a huge payoff to him. They have given him everything they can. And that's because, A, they want him to stay and be happy here forever. And B, even if that doesn't happen, they know that they want to reward him and make sure that he is taken care of for the rest of his career. Nobody has ever been taken care of better by an organization financially in the history of this city than Damian Lillard has been taken care of by the Portland Trailblazers and no player has been wanted more than the Trailblazers want to keep Dame. That is the end of that story. If he gets traded, one person and one person alone will have made that decision, and that is Damian Lillard. Now, he can make it for whatever reasons he wants, but it will not be the fan that drove him out. It will not be a media column that made him leave. It will not be a management decision to let him go. It will be, if it happened, that Damian Lillard decided that Damian Lillard no longer wants to be in Portland for Damian Lillard's own reason. And those may be valid, and those may be supportable. In fact, if he made that decision, I would understand. And in my heart, honestly, I would still love, appreciate, and support him. From my personal point of view, that's me owning my own feelings. I would be sad. I would be disappointed. I would think the team should have probably made better decisions in the past so we didn't get to this point. But you know what? Would still support him and support their right to make those decisions. That's the way things go. To have the person who has the only power to make those decisions then kind of offload some of that, I don't know what you want to say, criticism, blame, responsibility on someone else, even if that someone else said something he didn't like. It's kind of not okay. It's kind of, it's not a good look. Sorry. You know? 
there are a thousand things that could have be could have been said there. Hey, you know, yeah. Look, I'm not of Damian Lillard. I'm not. Damian Lillard is the sun. I am a grain of sand on the beach. But I also work in public facing venues. I also receive my share of criticism. And sometimes I will respond to that criticism back directly. Directly. Right? Someone makes a comment about what, you know, why did you put up this post or whatever? And I'm at the end of the day and, you know, we've put up seven posts and I'm missing time with my kids to get them done. And someone says, well, why'd you put up this post? And I've gone into the comments and said, here's why I put up this post. Or sometimes I don't have a choice but to put up this post. But, you know, it's like uh, there are six other posts today. Maybe you could read that one. I all own that. I do that. But I address that directly with the person who made the comment. I don't go around the side. All right. I don't rile up the Blazers Edge readers to, you know, comment about that person. Church work. I mean, it's this all the damn day long, especially if you stand up for anything like the rights of the marginalized or uh, people who are young, or people whom churches have ostracized. Go ahead. Dare to walk in your church and talk about the ways in which we have systematically excluded people, and the ways in which people still experience pain because of that uh, you know, ostracization that they have experienced in church communities. Try to talk about that and see what happens to you. It's happened to me for years. I don't try to rile up the church community against the people who are saying that. I either address it directly or I advocate the stuff that is good in the face of this. For instance, you know what? The gospel says this. Jesus sat with 5,000 people and women and children who were out in the wilderness and fed them even though they probably had nowhere else to go in that day, which is why they were out there with him. And that says something about how we are to feed and to interact with people. Now, I just addressed a lot of that marginalization or whatever in a nutshell, but I did not do it in a way that was kind of quasi-passive-aggressive and riled up people against people. There are ways to say, you know what? Hey, Portland, I hear this noise. And I want you to know that I still care about you. And if I leave or if I stay, that's going to be my decision, not your decision. And don't worry about it because I got you. And no matter what happens, we're going to respect each other. We're going to be, right, one way or the other. Oh, boy. First of all, that's super affirming. Second of all, that absolutely calms the storm and allows people to talk. And instead of creating this panic that then sends people feeding on other people, people and breaks apart the very fan base that's supposed to unite around you. Now, I'm not trying to critique Lillard word for word and say, you know, he should have worded this differently. I, I, you know, who, who am I? What am I going to say to Damian Lillard about his public persona? As I say, he's the most charismatic guy. He's the most acclaimed celebrity that has ever come through this town. I would never presume to do that. But the general tenor of it, the way in which one participates, still matters. And it doesn't help to have this stuff going on and then to have kerosene poured on the fire. And I'll tell you, that too kind of irks me a bit. That I think, folks, this conversation is going to go on all summer long. And this conversation 
is an open conversation, even for Dame, and he has said so publicly, and I know he has protested that he wants to stay. That's exactly how he said he's He wants to stay. That doesn't mean he's going to stay. He wants to stay. Also, he said he's not interested in, you know, raising up 19-year-olds and not winning and continuing to tank or whatever it is that he said, okay? For him, there are still two roads ahead. He has said, as long as those two roads are ahead, people are going to talk about it. Some people will talk about it foolishly, like Stephen A. Smith, who lost over Damien Lillard the way that the Portland fan base lost over Wemby. That's going to happen. So be it. There are some people within the Portland fan base that are going to want to talk about that other road and rebuilding and who really think the third pick has a lot of value. If they use it, that's fine to think. It's also fine to think that trading Dame could be a viable road forward because Damian Lillard thinks that trading Dame could be a viable road forward. It's fine to think that you never ever want to trade Dame. That's okay too. The organization never ever wants to trade Dame. Got people on your side already, and they're the people who are the decision makers or among the decision makers. You're going to be okay. You don't have to destroy anybody who says something different than you. That's not about Dame. That's not about the Trailblazers. That's about you. And you know what? I'll end this conversation the way that we kind of started it. We're not here to talk about us. Ideally, we're here to talk about the team and reveal who we are through that central discussion. And when we do that, conversation tends to turn out well. When we don't, it's a terrible mess. And you know what? It's kind of that whole scrolling of Twitter this week and seeing that terrible mess reenact among people who say they support the team. Just It just hits wrong. So as we go forward, let's be able to talk about keeping Dame or trading Dame. Let's be able to take, talk about the value of that third pick uh, whether we think it's high or low. And by the way, this is another interesting discussion moving on. There are some people who are pretty convinced that uh, the players available at number three are going to be generational talent. There are other people, I think, who see the gap between them and Wemby and go, mm, yeah, you know, they're going to be good players, but they're not that. And that, I think, is a fascinating discussion. And how the Trailblazers parse that out, Mike Schmidt, for instance, uh, their new, you know, lead scout or president of scouting or whatever it is that he does officially his title. That's going to be an interesting void in this discussion because if they have a true generational talent that they assess is going to be there at three folks, they probably need to keep that. I don't think that they do. I don't think that they will, which is part of why I think they're going to be able to trade it. But if that ever changes, oh boy. You have to have those discussions of keeping that talent no matter what. Okay? There, there's also a corresponding question of how much value that pick has in trade. And that is also vacillating and depends somewhat, I think, upon the recipient and their assessment and their scouting, department, scouting departments and their lead or need. So 
for instance, you already have discussion that Charlotte might not take Scoot Henderson. They might take Brandon Miller because they already have a Lamella Ball and they have a point guard. So maybe Scoot falls to three, which means that a different set of teams would be really interested in that pick than might be if Scoot gets taken at two. That's a fascinating wrinkle. But also, how much will that pick buy? That's a critical question. And I think that remains unanswered. Now, I've seen names out there. I think that that pick is north of DeAndre Ayton at this point. In other words, I think if you wave that number three pick at Phoenix for DeAndre Ayton, they'd say, yep, sure, how do we do this, right? I mean, I think it would be instant. I'm not sure that pick buys Mikhail Bridges. I, I, I think that uh, the Nets value him super highly. Uh, there are people who think that Bridges would be instantly available for that pick. I don't. Uh, that's my best guess, that Bridges is somewhere in the murky ground, but maybe a little high, that Aiton is too low, and anybody in between there, for whatever reason, might be in play. Embiid, uh, too far north. Jalen Brown, just on its own, too far north. Pascal Siakam is an interesting one, because I think normally he'd be too far north, but what is Toronto looking at? And how does Toronto want to build or rebuild? And if Siakam is sticking out the elder end of their plan, and they had a chance, like, you know, if, if Scoot is there and they think he is a generational point guard, are they willing to move Siakam for that, knowing they have Barnes in tow, knowing that, uh, they, you know, that their incumbent guards then would be less critical? which is important for Toronto because they've got a couple that they're not necessarily, you know, buried to keeping, I think, and that might make good trade bait. There you go. All right. So those are parallel discussions there. How much do the Blazers value the pick? How much does a trade partner value the pick? Here's another critical thing to remember, and we'll wrap this up. When you're talking about trading the pick, Portland is not able to absorb salary between cap holds this summer and the players they are keeping, no matter what, they are going to be over the cap. And they cannot reasonably clear enough space to get under them, which means they're going to need to send out salaries relatively equal to the salaries that they send or that they take in. Now, there are some ways to get around that a little bit if the the player they take in has a lower salary i mean not just player matching but maybe trade exception or what have you for instance you could let's say there was a player you love that made 10 million dollars and you have 11 million dollar trade you could trade the number three pick for cash or a future second rounder that protected top 59 or something like that uh and then trade the player for your trade acceptance. So that's possible. But if you're talking about big salary players, it's not going to work that way. And the Blazers are talking about a lot of high-rent players here, at least Blazer fans are thinking of it, which means that Portland is also going to have to send out players. And there aren't that many with big enough contracts to make a difference. Nasir Little makes around $6 million. I mean, and Shaden Sharp makes about that, too. Uh, you've got Nurkic at, like, 16 and Simons at 24. Those are your two big middle contracts. And then you have Jeremy Grant resigned around 30. 
if they resign him, although they would have to do a sign and trade, which can get tricky, or they'd have to wait. Or, of course, you have Damian Lillard, who would just make it ridiculous to even take in that player unless they were young because you're getting them to play with. So you really have two and a half possibilities. You have Anthony Simon, you have Yusuf Nurkic, and uh, you have maybe Jeremy Grant. Those three are all starters. Two of them, I mean, no matter how you feel about Nurk. Now, you can't get rid of Nurk for nothing either. I'm, I'm not sure how the Blazers would get rid of Nurk for a non-center. You, I guess you can get a rent-a-center or whatever, but Drew Eubanks can't be your starting center going into the season, no matter who else you get. And, I, you know, again, you could probably get a veteran for cheap and what have you. I get it. But you, you got to realize if you trade Nurk, you're center-less at that point. And no matter who you are in the Western Conference, if you are center-less, you are going to be in trouble when it comes to the playoffs because you know what? Anthony Davis still plays here. Obviously, Nick Jokic still plays here. DeAndre Ayton is still in Phoenix as of the moment. You're going to run into the team that has that advantage and uses it to make life very difficult on you. So you cannot go center free no matter who else you get. By the way, Phoenix kind of found this out when they lost to Denver, right? So, ah, what do you do? If you trade Nurk, you got a specific player kind or kind of player coming in, and you also have to make another move to either sign or trade for a big right? Uh, if you trade Grant, you got to have a power forward coming in or make up that. Uh, and if you trade Simons, you've got Sharp coming up. He's the most likely Simons because of salary and because of positional duplication. But it's not uh, inconsequential that Sharp is still going to have a learning curve. And it really, you know, that's that's not an automatic, and you still don't have a small forward unless you trade for one. So, like you're you're putting all your wing juice, uh, all that wing sauce is is on sharp at that point. Uh, so the player you take in may want to alleviate that. My point in doing this is it's not quite as easy as you think. That you have to view the whole roster construction after the trade, not just isolated talent like it was ratings on nba 2k and you have to realize that you are definitely losing some depth somewhere because just to make the salaries match you've got to trade out a lot of talent even if that talent resides in an individual person and if you're talking about the biggest move oh gosh you might have to trade two imagine having to trade the pick and simons and Nurkic to make a deal work now obviously those are huge salary play. I mean, we're talking Joel Embiid, so you live with it, right? But if there's if there's a trade where there's significant salary, it's going to cost you more than the pick. That's what you need to know. And that more than the pick is probably going to come from players that are in your starting lineup, or at least one of them. Don't forget to account for that in your move. Long story short, the Blazers still have a whole host of options. I think instead of just narrowed down to two or three that they had before, they knew what they had in the lottery, and they and they would still have that. If they'd gotten, God forbid, the ninth pick, I think their options would still be real limited. They would be looking at two and a half past four, right? I think they have more now. I think they're going to have a dozen. They're going to have chance to do things that they would not had they not moved up to the three. But none of those paths are going to be perfect. Almost none of them are going to be self-sufficient or, you know, the final big move. And each one of those paths is going to cost them options and talent. So 
ending where we started. This was not getting Wemby. It's not automatically okay. The Blazers still have some skillful moves to make. The next one that they're going to have to make is deciding whether to keep or trade that pick. And we're all going to see, I think, very soon, really within six weeks, what their decision will be. Uh, until then, we're going to have several podcasts. We will debate this with Marlo, no doubt. But uh, we will pick that up next week. Next week, we'll also retake up the playoffs. We know it's in the early stages of the conference finals. We know that Denver's up 2-0. We know that Miami's up 1-0. By the way, uh, I like Miami. Actually, don't tell, but I kind of like Miami to go all the way. I did not like that first. At, at, at the beginning of round one, that was not my choice. But as soon as it got down to the four, Miami, Boston, and uh, LA and Denver, and especially when all the odds makers were against Miami, I was going like, you know what? They're, they're not going to stop. I mean, they may not make it, but they're going to be the thorn in the side of everybody. And I would not doubt that they could sneak up. I, I, I don't know how or where to bet money, but if I had it at that point when the odds were low on Miami getting to the finals, even as the conference finals uh, progressed, when the odds were low of Miami winning at all, I would put Miami, I would have easily put 100 bucks on it because uh, I think they're going to be scarier than people think. But next week, we should have a much clearer view of those conference championships, and uh, that'll be interesting. I, I'm, I'm rooting for Denver. I won't, I won't disguise that. I think it'd be neat if Denver made the finals, and I think that would be great for that fan base. And Obviously, Jokic is a great player, and you know, if he doesn't win at least one ring, something's probably wrong, and this might as well be the year to do it. So uh, also, why would you want the Lakers? I don't understand why anyone... I mean, I don't hate them. But if you got a choice between the Lakers and anything else, going back to a, an analogy we had before, it's like choosing between Applebee's and some local restaurant. Go for the local restaurant every time. You've had Applebee's. You know what this tastes like. Even the best stuff at Applebee's smells like, eh, you know, whatever, average. Uh, and it's not like the LeBron and AD are average, but as far as title runs, stuff like that, yeah, we. this is the Applebee's of titles. Let Denver do it. I kind of... I mean, Miami and Boston, it's hard to choose a favorite. I don't care either one, but my heart roots for Denver to make it. And uh, my sneaky basketball mind says Miami, although I thought it would be Philly as well. So I'll prob I'm probably wrong about that. Anyway, we'll, we'll see how that goes. And uh, we'll talk to Marlo more about that. He'll have some more, ex more expert takes on that. We will see you next week. And as you debate and continue to debate the road forward, remember to do it with some decency and grace and respect for your fellow friends.